0: Lounging under an old oak tree on a breezy spring day in an out of the way corner of a park in Brownsville, Texas, he strums away on a guitar that looks nearly as old as he is. With a gaunt face, scruffy gray beard and a cigarette hanging loosely on his lips, he sings about the hardships of life and the kindness of strangers. His black fedora, rolled coat sleeves and leather bracelets give the impression of a washed-up D-list rock star trying to hold on to his better days. But there were no bright lights in this drifter's dark backstory. In the 80s, Jeffrey Cutlip spent 10 years behind bars for a violent Oregon burglary and sexual assault. He was out for just seven months before he robbed two more people at gunpoint in 1993 and was sent back for another six-year term. When he was released for the second time, Cutlip decided to take his show on the road, heading to sunny New Mexico. For three years, he let his wanderlust run wild, and managed to duck the requirements that he register as a sex offender until he could hide no longer. In 2004, his disability payments were cut off, so he snuck back into Oregon to get them reinstated. But first, he'd have to face the music for his wandering ways. Cutlip told the parole board he wanted to live a quiet life and he tried to be good, but there were just too many rules he had to follow rules set by the state, rules set by the shelter where he was living. He just wanted to be free, to spread his music. But that would have to wait. Cutlip was sent back for another four months behind bars. And once he was released, he was gone again, until July of 2012. I'm one. Hi, is
1: this
2: the police? I need to turn myself in. I've been a horrible person. I know I'm going to go through hell, but I'm going through hell anyway.
0: He'd already done time for the robbery, burglary and sexual assault. Could this simply be the ramblings of an aging imagination? Or was there something more sinister on the mind of this mild mannered drifter?
2: He has been extremely selfish from a very young age, and there's something inside him that he has to feed at other people's expense that he has
0: not ever been able to satiate. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Asorio, and this is the Scene of the Crime.
1: Great introduction to this case that has so many twists and turns. I mean, the first time I think, and I don't want to scoop your plot here, that um, <laughs> somebody like calls nine one one to turn themselves in for horrific crimes. Yeah, so-
0: it is so unusual to not only have somebody turn themselves in, but to have them turn themselves in for the crimes that
1: he would eventually be convicted of. That's right. Well, before we get to your episode, Kim, you know, we wanted to take a moment to thank our friends of the podcast. I know that as somebody who listens to tons of podcasts, mostly true crime, you know, everybody's always saying it. But I really we really want to thank you guys. Listeners who have hit the subscribe button on your favorite app and those who have actually taken the time to write some really amazing, wonderful reviews. We it's just we so appreciate it and given us five star reviews. And also those that have written to us via our Facebook page at Scene of the Crime or even emailed us at our website sceneofthecrimepodcast.com and shared with us cases that they're interested in that they've always been curious about and maybe some inside information and wanted us to look into. We do listen. And it's funny because people are always like. Is this Carolyn? Is this Kim? <laughs> like you know, I mean it's it's fun to to get those emails and we love we love chatting with you guys to be like, hey, let's talk about Yeah, and know, it's just us. It is just us. Yes, it is just us. We don't us. have any
0: fancy producers Ooh, or any of yeah. that business. Well, it's well, we are our fancy. Producers. I was just
1: gonna say, yeah, we're we're freaking fancy. Yeah. So anyway, for example, right now, because of one of our amazing listeners, and you know who you are, this person suggested the South Hill rapist story out of Spokane. It's a crazy Crazy story which I'm looking into right now. Also, we wanted to take a moment to thank law enforcement and also victims' families who have reached out to us either to share what happened to their loved one and wanted us to share the story or wanted us to help them with the cold case. We are right now working on three separate cold cases that we um, have gotten out there and are hoping to be a part of the solution for justice for these families. So thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it.
0: And thanks to Detective Jim Lawrence. He is the person that we spoke to for this week's episode. He had only been with Portland's cold case unit for a few months when the call came in. A woman wanting to know if there'd been any progress on the death of her sister, Julie Bennett. It happened in 1977 when Julie was just 15 years old. Her family described her as a shy, sweet girl with long blonde hair. The last time they saw her, she had taken a walk to the local market. Her body would be found days later in Johnson's Creek outside Portland. At first, her death was ruled accidental, But her family didn't believe it. In fact, her mother was a lifeguard and taught Julie to swim from a very early age. And in fact, it would be later determined that Julie had been sexually assaulted and strangled. But when Detective Lawrence went looking for the file, he couldn't find it. Not one single piece of paperwork to indicate that anyone in or around Portland had investigated Julie's death.
2: In the Portland area at that time of 1977, The city limits weren't as large as they are now. And a lot of what is now the city of Portland was unincorporated Multnomah County. So we suspected that maybe the case belonged to Multnomah County. But when I started doing the research, we couldn't find any homicide case with any agencies whatsoever. So I returned the phone call to the family member, who is Julie's sister, Jan Plant. She gave me some additional information related to where Julie was found, and it was on the border of the city of Portland in Clackamas County. And I um, researched some records of Clackamas County. I even went to the medical examiner's office and I just couldn't find anything.
0: But Julie's sister knew she was dead, knew she'd been killed in 1977, knew there was some kind of investigation because she still had a bag full of evidence that had been collected and she still had newspaper clippings all about her sister's disappearance.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, um, hearing that detail, when you think about a family member having a bag full of evidence, and what that's like for the family member, when I was just dating my now husband at the time, his brother had been killed by a drunk driver. Mm. He was only 20 years old, he'd been riding his bicycle, and this was a, a just chronic drunk driver. And just mowed him down and killed him. And they gave back this bag of evidence. And I just remember it being downstairs. There was this basement room that it was kind of like a shrine Mm. to the brother. And it had his bloody fanny pack that he'd been wearing. It had the pieces from his bicycle, his bloody clothes. And it sounds morbid to keep that. But it's like... The connection, the last connection you have to that person. I mean, how can you throw that away? But what do you do with it? Did they leave it out? His mom just kept kept it in that basement room. Is it still there, do you think? Well, she's long passed away, but it it would be there if she was still alive. But there were other things, too, where, like, the car that he had, she just couldn't sell it. She Mm. could not sell something that had belonged to him. And it's like the more things as time goes on that you get rid of, you you lose the connection. Mm -hmm. And I saw that firsthand and I've heard victims say that. And it's like, yeah, you know, you really just don't know what that's like and why you would keep that because they didn't want to lose touch of of the person that they loved and how awfully their life was mowed down in in an instant. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: crazy in this case that she kept it for decades. What is I mean, 30 years?
1: She held on to this stuff. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, and it's actually a good thing that the family did hold on to it because (laughs) it it was proof that like, yes, this happened. Right. And so
0: one thing they knew from that investigation was that a man named Jeff Cutlip had been the last to see her alive as she was walking back from the store. Cutlip was a known sex offender and a person of interest in the murder of another woman a couple of years earlier. So Detective Lawrence did a little more digging. What he discovered was that because Julie's death had been ruled accidental, not only did the investigation stop, but a lot of the evidence, the autopsy and other reports had been thrown out years earlier.
2: It's both frustrating uh, from a detective standpoint and then from a, a very real human standpoint, it's actually heartbreaking because I didn't have a sister growing up. I grew up with brothers. Uh, but uh, Julie came from a large family, boys and girls. Julie's father was a medical doctor, and he had since passed before I met with the family. But I had to meet with two sisters, a mother, and uh, so I knew their hearts were going to be broken from that perspective. So that was extremely difficult. But from a detective standpoint, it was very frustrating because I knew that somebody somewhere just flat out dropped the ball. And whether or not they appropriately reviewed the records before they purged them, or whether somebody just got lazy and put it in a box and it went out with other records because Oregon law only required a 20 year case retention on things that were not homicides. But I knew based on one of the cases that I researched that, um, and this was a separate sex offense that Jeff Cutlip was convicted of in the 80s. I knew that somebody had marked the Julie Bennett case file to be retained. So somebody either ignored that or just overlooked it and it was gone. So as a detective, that was extremely frustrating because there was the possibility that we could, based on what was in those records and based on new information that we were potentially gonna develop, there were some investigative steps that we could have taken.
0: So Detective Lawrence says he had to eat a crap sandwich and tell the family that even if Jeff Cutlip showed up on their doorstep and confessed with no evidence to corroborate his story, it would be extremely difficult to get a conviction.
1: You know, there's a couple of things to unpack with that. First of all, it's so refreshing to hear Detective Lawrence basically say, hey, you know, someone screwed up along the lines, I don't know who it was, bureaucracies happen. You You know, know when I
0: screw up at work though, nobody's life hangs in the balance. I mean, when you screw up and you're going after a murderer, If you don't catch him and he does it again, this is a life or death situation. But if the
1: coroner puts it as accidental drowning, it's almost impossible for them to go back and change it to undetermined. I mean, it is really difficult for that to happen. And so another thing, though, is is to have to go in and and take one for the team, for the family, so many years later. Because they really don't care that this person, in this case, Detective Lawrence... You know, he's the messenger and often, you know, we shoot the messenger because, you know, there, there's a saying and that's the reason because, yeah. you know, their loved one has never received justice. So I, you know, hats off to him for eating that crap sandwich and then doing I just don't like saying crap.
0: (laughs) Well, the
1: the other hard thing was, even
0: though the family had this evidence bag Mm -hmm. of items, you know, Mm -hmm. they offered it. They said, hey, we have physical evidence. Take it, you know, take it to the lab. But they can't do that because of chain of evidence. Yes. There's no way to prove that even if they
1: had something more they wouldn't be able to use it. Right. It's almost don't even test it so because we won't be able to use it. But then again, you're like, well, maybe that'll point us in a different direction.
0: Yeah. Well, he said, you know, they kept it in mind that that was there if at some point they wanted to test it. But he said, you know, from the get go, they just didn't think there would be any point in in taking that evidence back back Mm -hmm. and, and trying to test anything because they just didn't think it'd be admissible. So it would be really difficult to get a conviction, but not impossible. If they could connect Cutlip with the earlier murder It would definitely help. But the detective had some doubt that these cases were even connected. Julie Bennett was a 15-year-old girl. The other victim, Marlene Carlson, was a 44-year-old mother of three. She had also been sexually assaulted and strangled. She was found tied up in her Portland apartment. Someone had put a padlock on her door and had apparently come back to continue assaulting her over several days. Julie's death seemed like a crime of opportunity. Marlene's death seemed planned and calculated and while Marlene was killed in 1975 two years before Julie detective Lawrence says they had better evidence they even had DNA the samples had been found on cigarette butts left in Marlene's apartment but there were some issues with those samples firstly they came from three different people other than Marlene Second, they weren't the best quality samples. Not only were they decades old, but the lab could only get partial sequences because the DNA had come from saliva. Apparently, there's different types of DNA that they can get different types of information from. So, for example, Detective Lawrence says that sperm's the most complete type of DNA that detectives can work with. They can get a complete sequence from that, but other types of DNA they might not be able to.
1: I did not know that. That's really interesting. So is that when you know, you hear these things, well, we only got certain parts of it. We don't have all of it because maybe it was saliva instead of Yes.
0: Right. Or maybe they could say, well, we've narrowed it down to this particular family. Mm-hmm. We know that your genetics are
1: in there somewhere, but we don't know which family member it is, that sort of thing. OK. And so I just want to track this. So Marlene was killed in 1975. And did they think that was he a suspect in that murder in he 1975? He wasn't a suspect
0: in 1975. They would later come to find out that he had lived in her building. And so later on, he became a person of interest for that fact. And eventually, when they created a DNA database that they could go back to and compare, and he was arrested in the 80s, remember, for that sexual assault? Mm -hmm. So when he was arrested for that, they ran his DNA— later on, and they discovered that it matched up with one of the DNA samples at Marlene's apartment.
1: Okay, so maybe one of those cigarette butts, for example.
0: Exactly. So at the time of her murder, he was not a suspect. They had no idea about him. But a decade later, his name started to come up. Wow. Okay. But he wasn't a suspect yet. He was just a person of interest. So another detective in the cold case unit was handling Marlene's case at that time. So Lawrence reached out to him. So
2: Dan and I sat down and we looked at what the DNA actually meant, what the quality of the hit was, and how that could impact those two cases together. And because there were three possible donors and it was really only a partial profile, it wasn't even a a profile that we could literally go out and say, hey, this is the guy and nobody else. uh, We knew that we couldn't use that as our leverage point To get jeff cutlip into custody so we were going to have to be a lot more creative about how we got to that point
0: so there wasn't too much movement on marlene's case at that point couldn't do much with it in the 70s since then they did identify all three of the men who are connected with the samples they gathered in the 70s and one of them did turn out to be jeffrey cutlip
2: sadly all three were sex offenders all three were burglars The only difference was that one of them would have been about eight years old at the time. So we were able to eliminate him. But the other donor was also within an age range where he could have potentially committed the crime. And uh, what we didn't want to do in case he was actually the suspect to Marlene Carlson was go and start uh, hitting him up with interrogative type questions and essentially building in the ability for him to create his own defense because when you have a partial profile with only a few alleles on it, and because the circumstances of Marlene Carlson's death, because we didn't have enough information about Julie Bennett's death, was a standalone kind of case. We didn't know to what extent which guy was gonna be the better suspect based on essentially the methodology of the killer. So there was still a lot of work to be done.
0: So in case you didn't catch that, there were cigarette butts that were in Marlene Carlson's apartment that had DNA on them from three different men, and all three of those men turned out to be sex offenders. And burglars, it seems, right? (laughs) I I guess. I mean, the crazy thing, too, is that one of them was underage at the time that he was smoking that cigarette
1: because he didn't become an adult until years later. So the two... Okay, so when they took out the eight-year-old... Then the two, how, because they didn't have a full profile, they couldn't tell which one of them was which or. Well, wh- they knew they were both in the apartment, but how do you know which one committed the sexual assault and the murder? Right, because it's on the butts and it's not on the body. You
0: don't know when they were there. Right. They were there at some point before she was killed or possibly after smoking yeah. those
1: cigarettes. But didn't you say that Cutlip actually lived in the apartment? I'm surprised. In the building, that, yeah. I'm surprised that he wasn't.
0: So they would later find out that he had scratched his name off of the little tag that was by the doorbell downstairs out front of the apartment building. You know, they have the little buzzer Mm -hmm. buttons and they have the name of the person who lives in the apartment. He had actually scratched his name off of it. So they Um, didn't know that he had been living there at the time. Wow. So by 2008, Jeffrey Cutlips, about 58 years old, he had been convicted of a number of sexual assaults and burglaries, and in fact, since the 80s, he had been in and out of Oregon prisons and state psychiatric facilities. But again, Detective Lawrence says his other crimes didn't seem to line up with the murder of Marlene Carlson.
2: We were kind of in a vacuum in terms of could he have really committed this Marlene Carlson homicide because it looked markedly different than the sex offenses that he had been convicted of. The one sex offense that I mentioned from the 80s, that victim had talked about Jeff Cutlip potentially uh, attempting to drown her in a bathtub. Um, So we were starting to look at that case being linked more to the Julie Bennett case than the Marlene Carlson case because Marlene Carlson uh, was attacked in her apartment. She was tied up and it had gone eight days before her body was discovered and the cigarette butts were in an ashtray, and there was probably, if I remember right, 20 cigarette butts in that ashtray. And what you never get with DNA is the time the DNA was deposited. So who knew how long those cigarette butts had been there?
0: So basically at this point, they have a shit ton of circumstantial evidence linking Cutlip to these murders, but not enough to make an arrest on any of them and no clear path forward. Detective Lawrence couldn't forget that beautiful blonde girl whose life had been stolen and whose family was still searching for answers.
2: Back in 2008, when uh, Jan had given me a picture of Julie, I had it up on the bulletin board right on my desk, but I didn't have it in a place where I could see it every day. And after a second or third phone call from Jan, I put it in my desk where I could see it every day. So every day when I got to the office, The first thing I saw at my desk was Julie Bennett. And I'd created a file with the uh, copies of the newspaper articles and everything. And it was also always in kind of my inbox folder. So before I could get to anything else, I had to go past that file. It was kind of my way of always reminding me about that case.
0: Years went by and every day he saw Julie. Every day he was reminded of the unanswered questions and of the family who was missing her. Then in July of 2012, the phone call that would change everything.
1: Robin,
2: one. Hi, is this the police? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I need to turn myself in. I've been a horrible person. I know I'm going to go through hell, but I'm going through hell anyway.
1: You know what? Notice how he says, I'm going to go through hell. I mean, just from that phone call, I'm already like, my face is scrunching up and because you know it sounds like he's going to be a real selfish yeah little shit <laughs> yeah yeah hang so
0: tight cutlip had moved to brownsville texas and was living off social security disability payments but he had failed to register as a sex offender and a warrant had been issued for his arrest now under texas law if you have an active warrant all of your state benefits are cut off
2: He was uh, without food stamps and was basically living on the streets and trying to scrounge up as much money as he could. In fact, there's some YouTube videos of him trying to play guitar on the street in Brownsville to try and make money. Um, In fact, he actually got pulled off the street to go to some party that the mayor of Brownsville was hosting. And then after uh, going through a period where he was without food and without care, uh, he decided that it was time to turn himself in and he made a 911 call to the Brownsville Dispatch and uh, told them that he wanted to talk to a detective about horrible crimes that he committed in Portland, Oregon back in the 70s. I've hidden it all this time. I'm 63. And it, all of them happened in uh, before 1982, except for one in 93.
1: I think that it's amazing that they have that law in place where, especially if you're a sex offender, if you have not registered, that you need to your benefits get taken away. And um, I mean, I just feel like that's a wonderful law.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a law in Texas, but not in most other states.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought.
0: And I think part of the reason, well, I think there's a lot of reasons. But part of the reason is you can cut somebody's benefits off in Texas if they simply have a warrant. But a warrant is not a conviction. A lot of civil rights attorneys
1: would argue that that is not actually a fair threshold. I'm talking about if you, from a benefits standpoint, I'm saying that if you're supposed to be, if part of whatever you've done means that you need to register as a sex offender, that means they've already been convicted. And if you don't do that, that's when that goes into place that the benefits are pulled. Right. Not if they have a warrant out for their But arrest.
0: that's what the law is in Texas. If you have a warrant, your benefits can be cut off. And a warrant is not necessarily a conviction.
1: Yes. I'm. I'm talking about... I think I I think it's splitting hairs a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like if you're a convicted sex offender and you and you move somewhere else and you haven't you know, put your name in like you're supposed to as a part of your release that, yeah, they should take the benefits. You need to you need to register. That's part of the that's part of the system. So I I feel like that. And in this case, actually, I think it was the tipping point.
0: It was absolutely it was. So Brownsville detectives picked him up, brought him back to the station, but they weren't sure exactly what they were dealing with here because it sounded like such a crazy story. And why would anyone just call up and confess to being A serial killer, that just doesn't happen. I don't think it's ever happened before.
2: But prior to them calling us, they actually thought he's just flat out nuts, which was why they called and they said, hey, you know, is this guy for real? Because he walked in and said all this crap and he kind of appears to be a little nuts to us and he's definitely kind of this homeless vagrant. We don't know what to do with him.
0: And when the cops in Brownsville called Portland police, even the homicide unit there couldn't make any sense of the story. The date that he gave for the Marlene Carlson murder was wrong, and the detective who answered the phone had never heard of anyone by the name of Julie Bennett being murdered, but he decided to go ahead and check with Detective Lawrence in the cold case unit, just in case.
2: And the conversation went something like this. Sergeant McLaughlin said, hey, what can you tell me about um, an old case from 1977 where a young girl was found in Johnson Creek? And so I went through every detail I knew. Oh, her name is Julie Bennett. She was found in 1977, born in 1961. She'd been missing for a couple of days and I kind of laid it out to him. And I said, the guy that I think is probably good for that case, Jeff Cutlip, was also good for the 1975 murder, Marlene Carlson. She was found in her apartment up in the Pacific Northwest um, and she had been strangled. And I went through you know, all the details with him and there was a pause. And he said, well, pack your bags. You're going to Brownsville, Texas. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, Cutliff just walked into Brownsville PD and confessed to those two and a couple other murders. I said, you're kidding me.
0: So Detective Lawrence was joined by Detective Meredith Hopper. And as they were flying to Texas, they tried to figure out the best way to approach this guy. Between the lack of evidence and the decades that had passed since the crimes, There was a lot riding on getting a really good confession that they would be able to use in court. Even though Cutlip was already talking, so far, Lawrence says, they didn't have the details that they would need.
2: We didn't know enough about Jeff and where Jeff's head's at right now to put together a cohesive strategy. So the first thing we wanted to do was just let him tell his story the way he told it to the Brownsville people take some notes, and then at the appropriate time, take a break, and then find out what places where he's already given information, could we potentially exploit it without tipping his hand to exactly what we're doing as far as, you know, trying to get more detail to do an arrest warrant, because we didn't know he, of his IQ being a genius IQ, but we knew Either he wasn't remembering details or he was intentionally omitting certain details. So what we didn't want to do was put pressure on him. We wanted to keep him talking.
1: I mean, the fact that he was a genius is just, it shows that interrogations are often playing chess, not checkers, and knowing who you're dealing with what their strategies are, what their, you know, because people can be extremely convincing liars.
0: Yeah. And especially people who are psychopaths, sociopaths, people who have done it their
1: entire lives, the way Jeffrey Cutlip had. And and he doesn't fit the mold of serial killer. All of his other crimes up until this point are sexual assaults, burglaries. So, I mean, I could see them like, how can we approach this? How can we, you know, get the confession, get a good confession that's not coerced, that's not like, so there's a lot riding on this. Yeah, well, and and he was a
0: genius, which they didn't realize until they were doing their research before the interrogation, they discovered that when he'd been in and out of those mental institutions since he was a teenager, at one point he went through a gamut of testing that included an IQ test, and it came back that Cutlip was a genius. We're going to talk a little bit more about his time in the institutions in a little bit, but getting back to this initial interview, during that first conversation, not only did he give them a little bit more detail about the murders of Julie and Marlene, but he confessed to attacking at least two other women.
2: He had already confessed to a third murder we knew nothing about, so we had to get some details on that. He'd confessed to a fourth murder we knew nothing about, but as it turns out, that was likely an attack where the victim pretended to be dead and then escaped later alive.
0: So Detective Lawrence says that first conversation lasted more than two hours. They decided to take a break, stretch their legs, think about what they had heard, and strategize how to move forward to get even more detail out of Cutlip so that they could just keep him talking.
2: Trust me, that first break we took, we we probably stood next to each other for, for about a minute and a half before we actually said anything and even made eye contact with each other. And we looked at each other. And I can remember specifically looking at Meredith and saying, what the fuck did we just hear? Because it was so awful. Um, and she was just kind of shocked by it. We decided in that second one that we needed to start to get some information about kind of his uh, sexual patterns and practices because Marlene Carlson's body was so decomposed by the time it was discovered, she had laid for eight days deceased before anybody knew that. Julie Bennett. It had been in a creek, so we didn't know to what degree it sexually assaulted either one of them.
0: But they didn't have too much time to dwell on the disgusting nature of his crimes. They were on a roll, and they decided the best way to keep up this momentum was to let Detective Hopper take the lead.
2: At one point, he became, I don't want to say fixated, but he really viewed Meredith as his confidant at some point. And I think it was because... When in the first interview, when we wanted to ask him about some of his general sex practices in the first interview, just generally, is he more attracted to women than he is men? You know, all of those sorts of things. When I would ask those questions, he would give the answers to Meredith. And I think he truly was trying to shock Meredith. And when it didn't shock her, in reality, it did, but she didn't show it. Uh, When it did shock her, when he went into more detail of these really horrific sex practices in that first interview, I think he kind of found her to be somebody he could relate to.
0: At first, they tried to focus on the crimes that they knew a little bit more about, the murders of Marlene and Julie where they could tell if Cutlip was being truthful and whether he'd be willing to share details that the investigators didn't already know, but which they could confirm through evidence they still had or corroborating statements from witnesses. They also wanted to make sense of the fact that the crimes seemed so different, one being a teenager attacked in public, the other being a mother attacked in her own apartment. So they started in 1975 and the murder of Marlene Carlson.
2: She was probably asleep in bed based on the crime scene uh, when he got into her apartment, how he did that. We don't know, but he uh, had straddled her in such a fashion based on his description that she couldn't get up, but he still used the cord in the clock radio to strangle her. He had both uh pre paramortem and postmortem sex with her. He put a padlock on the outside of her door so that only he could get into her apartment for the next eight days. Officers had to break that padlock. So these were all things that we knew. Well, that was markedly different from Julie Bennett. He encountered her at Selwood Park. He was playing his guitar and she approached him. And then when her boyfriend left the park and left her down at the park, he convinced her to go back to his residence, which was close to the park. And once he got her in his apartment, he attacked her. And to his uh, statement, he kept her for probably four hours committing a variety of different horrible sexual offenses against her before letting her get dressed on her own. And when she said she was going to go to the police, he walked with her all the way back to Selwood Park, where Johnson Creek was, trying to beg her not to go to the police. And when she refused to do that, then he physically assaulted her again um, and placed her into the creek.
0: It's so weird how different these crimes are. I mean, with Marlene, he pretty much immediately strangled her or, you know, very soon after he broke into her apartment, he strangled her. But with Julie,
1: it seems like he was almost just going to let her go until she threatened to go to the cops. Yeah, I mean, you really want... Uh, you can see that he's all over the map with this, and it's really hard for, you know, law enforcement to put these pieces together. And as we learned from the FBI profiler that we talked to about how you don't know when you're... You need a complete profile of the person because it could be the 35th, it could be the 3rd, and then the 6th. It's not... You don't know how many murders don't they've know. committed. And, and what they've done in between. Right. And so this is this is right here. Like, there is no... Uh, Pattern to his mayhem. And you can just see the 15-year-old going to the park, hearing this guy playing his guitar. He probably seemed harmless. And for whatever reason, she goes back with him. You know, he probably, I don't want to say seemed charming, but he, you know, has this high intelligence. And, you know, he knows how to get, he got her away from her family.
0: I feel like I would have been, julie like i was that trusting at that age i was super trusting of of just about anybody and it was always like well most people are nice well you know the chances that he would hurt me nah, you know probably not you know i i would have been that kid so i, I would could have too see where... that's what i'm
1: saying i can see yeah. that you know he's got you know what we see about who he is mm-hmm. you know at 62 turning himself in is certainly probably and i i I don't know if you've said this before, but we know he's got like a, he's very diminutive in stature, right? Yeah, he's not, not a huge super big guy. He's not a super guy. Yeah. Or, you know, he wouldn't be threatening, I'm sure.
0: And if he was somebody who was regularly hanging out at the park playing guitar and she saw him there on a, a few occasions, he might become sort of familiar to
1: her. Well, w- remember. When he was like in his 60s in Texas playing and they, the mayor pulled him into his party to be right. like, hey, like, can you, you be our entertainment? So clearly you can't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, as he, they does, say. he does not come off
0: threatening in a threatening manner. That's that's for sure. So through this entire initial interview, the detectives continued their good cop, bad cop routine with Detective Lawrence taking a back seat, letting Detective Hopper lead the questioning. After Cutlip divulged those details about Julie's murder, which seemed to line up with the story that her family and other witnesses had told about that day, Detective Hopper decided it was time to learn a little more about one of the other murders that Cutlip had mentioned, Nileen Dahl. She was 33 years old when she was murdered in 1993.
2: He met Nileen doll in a bar and basically convinced her to take him back to her house so they could do methamphetamine and have sex. And he attacked her, strangled her, and then he used her own car to take her body out to the woods in Clackamas County. And then he dumped her car back in the city limits of Portland. He committed the homicide in Northeast Portland, but he dumped her body in Clackamas County. So because that wasn't on our caseload, it didn't ring any bells to us at all um, until we got back from Cameron County, we started reaching out to other local agencies because he described it pretty well. He described that one in enough detail and they had the case reports that we were able to charge that up uh, at a, you know, at a grand jury and get him indicted before his extradition uh, with that Nylene Dahl case.
0: With enough evidence to file charges for Nylene Dahl's murder, they filed for extradition and Cutlip didn't even try to fight it, which really surprised everyone. Looking back, Lawrence thinks there were two reasons for this. First, he had a public defender who was focused on the allegations that Cutlip had failed to register that warrant out of Texas. He wasn't fully versed in Oregon law, and he may not have known about all of the different crimes that cutlip was thought to be connected with so he
1: may not have warned cutlip that extradition would be a really bad idea so i need help unpacking that so did he think that he was going to confess to these crimes and get away i mean i'm not what they have what is this guy thinking <laughs> I'm, I'm speechless
0: help me yeah apparently well on top of all this apparently the officer who had contacted cutlip about the initial warrant for failing to register in texas told him that if he didn't follow the rules he'd have all of his benefits cut off any kind of state aid food stamps whatever would stop he also for some reason lumped in the fact that cutlip was a person of interest in some of the old murder cases out of oregon so all of this may have given cutlip the wrong idea about what would happen once he was taken back to oregon
2: so i think that in cutlip's mind and he never would answer this question for us in our conversations But I think in his mind, he truly thought he could confess to the crimes in Oregon, go back to Oregon and get that warrant cleared up, but not actually get held accountable for the murders because he didn't want to give a completely detailed confession related to all of that. I really thought that he believed he would go back or give a half-assed confession to Brownsville and to us and then be able to leave again and go somewhere else and hide. I truly believe that that was his motivation for doing that. When he walked into Brownsville, Texas, it was, uh, trust me, it was very strange because serial killers tend not to do that. But we learned later on, kind of in our interactions with him, that this was probably all a strategy he had had hatched on, on his own to try and do this. But at some point he realized He may have just set himself up for a lifetime in prison. So then he tried to kind of do some things, tell us what he thought we wanted to hear, things that weren't necessarily true or who he was.
0: So when he made that initial 911 call to confess, Cutlip apparently thought he could just clear up these old allegations, get those public benefits reinstated and go on living his life. And remember, he is a genius. He has a really high IQ. It is hilarious to me at times how dumb Some geniuses can be. (laughs) So obviously that turned out to be the case here. He was extradited back to Oregon for the murder of Nyleen Dahl and is a suspect in the murders of Julie Bennett and Marlene Carlson. But what about that fourth murder Cutlip had confessed to during the initial interrogation?
2: And he described being in a bar, meeting this bartender, kind of waiting for her after she got off work at her consent them walking down the street and when he found this construction site that had some structure to it, knocking her, you know, upside the head and then dragging her in the construction site and then attempting to choke her and that she never fought back. So he thought he killed her when he hit her in the head. Um, And the way he described it, we were able to figure out where it would have occurred and the timeframe matched a couple of the buildings that had been built in that area. But there was no homicide case. There was no victim. There was no missing persons. And one of the things that we knew from one of his living victims was that they were able to get away from him by either feigning death or basically getting themselves away from him and acting like they're calling the police. Well, we believe that she probably did not die because if a construction crew, because he didn't talk about hiding the body and if a construction crew at that time found a body on their construction site, they would have called the police.
0: So we don't know the identity of that fourth victim, the one who got away. But Detective Lawrence was starting to see a pattern in Cutlip's crimes, starting back with the burglary and sexual assault that he was convicted of in the 1980s.
2: There's like a buildup to it. There was a living victim of a burglary that he attempted to uh, sexually assault and murder. It was a mother and daughter. He was going to see what it was like to do two people when he went back through and he got convicted of that burglary. When he described that event to us, what scared him off from that event was the mother calling the police because he saw her on the phone from finishing that crime the way he wanted to. uh, It was all about kind of building up in him. Okay, well, I've done this thing. What's the next thing I can do that's even more shocking?
0: And the detective says they also learned why Cutlip stopped killing, at least why he says he stopped after that final murder of Nileen Dahl in 1993.
2: It was the Nyleen Dahl homicide uh, that convinced him that his future as a killer was limited because she turned the tables on him. He described to us um, that when he was trying to strangle her, that she actually was able to get on top of him and he had to hit her with a blunt object uh, in order to regain control of her. And it was at that point that he realized, because he's of fairly slight build, uh, that he either needs to pick smaller victims or just not try and kill people anymore. Um, And that's when he went in to describe to us all the children that he's committed sex offenses against.
0: His crimes were truly sexually motivated. So as he became older and less able to overpower his victims, he had to choose individuals who couldn't defend themselves. Those who were too small, too young or less intelligent to fight back cutlip described abusing the children of neighbors whose parents he was friendly with and had no idea what was going on he also said while he was in the brownsville area which had a large immigrant population he would choose the children of people who didn't speak english and again they just didn't know what was going on he would also reach out to people who were struggling financially offering to babysit for free
1: yeah i mean this shows that he Completely has control of whether or not he kills people, the victims that he chooses, that he could have chosen to, to not do this and, cho- and, and chose to do it. You know, he's not insane. This guy, it, it makes me wonder about his childhood, like what happened here. Oh, uh, we'll get there. Okay.
0: So later when the detectives looked deeper into Cutlip's background, they would find that this was a pattern, this abusing people who were vulnerable was a pattern they could find in other parts of his life as well.
2: Looking at some of his girlfriends, so one of the things that made the case that he went to prison on in the early 80s, the violent sex offense, so weird to us was that he took his girlfriend along on that. The problem was she was developmentally disabled. So she couldn't, you know, turn him away or say, I'm not going. And then they couldn't use her as a witness. His one wife had a developmentally disabled daughter, if I remember correctly so he was literally picking people he could victimize in other ways even the woman that he lived with when he killed julie bennett had some issues and was uh, certainly on government assistance
0: when cutlip arrived in oregon he was not taken to jail he was taken to a psychiatric facility there were probably a lot of reasons for this not only did he have a long history of mental illness but he had had problems being housed in jails before He didn't get along with other inmates, he was obstinate with the guards, and they just couldn't figure out how to deal with him. So to give you an example of this, on the morning that he was being extradited, he was supposed to take a shower. Inmates are transported on commercial planes. It was already going to be super awkward having this shackled prisoner flanked by armed guards getting onto a plane with other passengers. They just didn't want to add body odor (laughs) to that mix. But that morning, Cutlip refused to get out of bed, literally just laid there like a log, refusing to move. The guards ended up having to physically drag him to the showers, strip him, douse him with water, wash him, get him dressed while he's fighting them the entire time. He had some serious control issues. and. When you get to the point that you're in jail and you have no control over almost anything in your life, like, you don't get to decide when you get up, what you eat every day, when you eat, where you're living, who you're living with. I mean, you don't get to decide anything. He just decided he needed to take control of something. Mm-hmm. And so this is where he decided to make his stand.
1: Yeah, but I mean, he wanted Food. He didn't want to live on his own. That's what made him call the 911. You know, he thought that he was going to go and, you know, get his benefits restored and, you know, get back to his ways. And when he found out, like you know, this is not happening. Yeah, it's and, not going to be as easy as I thought it was yeah, going to be. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it also shows what what they have to deal with when you have prisoners like this and how, you know, difficult and things go awry. he could have hit his head. He could have, like, it's just hard to deal with people who won't deal, right. you know? So Jeffrey Cutlip was a convicted
0: sex offender and an admitted serial killer when he arrived at that psychiatric hospital in Oregon. But believe it or not, things were about to get even more bizarre.
2: So on August 28th, I got this phone call from this woman that was insisting we pull the Damnish State Hospital records. And we had already talked about doing that. So when I called her back and I asked her, why did she think we needed to pull the state hospital records? She told me that she was a charge nurse at Damnish Hospital. So she would take people's, uh, when they got brought to the hospital, either on medical hold, a police hold, or a self-turn in. She would look in their records to see if they'd been in before, what their diagnosis was. And so when she saw on the new patient intake form that Jeff Cutlip had arrived at the state hospital, she asked herself, is this the same Jeff Cutlip that I babysat as a child? And it was. So we went into detail with her of what she remembered as uh, Jeff Cutlip as a young child. And what she told us truly horrified us um that as a toddler barely able to walk jeff cutlip killed a small animal and urinated on it and then she told us that after a couple of years jeff cutlip then began setting fires as a toddler maybe four or five years old
0: they also learned that cutlip had tried to kill his own father when he was a teenager by shooting him with a bow and arrow
2: and not trying to make light of the situation but we talk about, you know, the FBI and their behavioral analysis unit and both the good and the bad things that come out of them. And one of the things that's always frustrating is they seem to always come up with the same profile. That a serial killer is a white male between 25 and 45 years of age is, you know, not socially accepted, lives in his mom's basement, wet the bed as a child, you know, set fires, you know, all those sorts of things. So we laughed a little bit about how accelerated Jeff Cutlip was in developing the FBI profile because he was doing it as a toddler.
1: That's because he was a genius serial killer. Well, and I remember Ted Bundy when we were doing that uh, episode, his mom's sister woke up with the knives around the bed when he was a toddler.
0: It's interesting how early they show these tendencies and yet they get away with it for so long.
1: Well, I think that in Ted Bundy's case, and obviously in Cutlip's case, they're able to charm, use their intelligence to, you Mm -hmm. know, they're sociopaths.
0: Knowing how early on in life Cutlip had shown violent tendencies, they started wondering what other crimes might he have committed before that first known murder in 1975. There were a few cases from the time period that they felt could fit Cutlip's profile, But by now, he seemed to realize that he wasn't doing himself any favors by sharing so much with the detectives. And it was getting harder and harder to get him to talk.
2: And when we could clearly see he was trying to withhold, Meredith just sat right up in her chair and looked at him and said, Jeff, I'm tired of this crap and you should have seen the look on his face. He was shocked. She goes, I'm tired of you thinking you can fucking shine me on. I want to know how many more people there are because... I mean you've told us all this stuff. Do you think you're going to shock me? Because you haven't. And he goes, Well, and there's a pause. And she goes, Well, let me ask you a question. And he sat back and folded his arms, which is which is a typical, I'm not going to tell you anything. She said, Have you killed any children? And he wouldn't answer. And he and she goes, Well, you've already told us you've raped multiple children. How come you can't answer my question about whether you've killed any or not? And he goes, No. Just really like kind of succinct. And then she goes, Well, what else have you done? And he wouldn't talk. And she goes, all right, I'll ask you another question. Have you have you uh, killed and eaten any of your victims? Oh. And you should have seen the look on his face. He now was getting angry. And Meredith said, you already told us you got no problem screwing dead people. What about eating them?" No, Meredith. Said, no, Meredith. No. <laughs> and then he looked right up at the camera and then he, he literally looked down and then he just shook his head. And at that point, everything we asked him, he just wouldn't even answer and he wouldn't even look at us. So he knew at that point, he had totally done himself in that we knew exactly who he was and that was how he was going to be portrayed. And at that victim impact, hearing that is sentencing. Nyleen Dahl's relatives, they did not want to read it. They asked Meredith to read it. And at the end of the letter that they wrote, and Meredith told the judge she was reading their letter verbatim. The last line was, I hope you rot in hell. And when Meredith read that, She looked directly at Jeff and said that.
0: I
1: just love Detective Marilyn Hopper. (laughs) I I do, too. And I I actually saw that cut. It was so powerful. And, um, you know, I mean, I can imagine it gets so incredibly personal for these detectives who, Mm -hmm. you know, have relationships with the families and then have to put on a good face with this vile person to try to get information to try to woo them in whatever ways they can to get them keep, get them and keep them talking trying to play their game and try to outwit you know it's, it's it had to
0: feel so good for her to finally be able to let go
1: yeah for sure because she was trying to act like You know tell me more tell me more tell me more Jeff and he was trying to shock her and you can just see that dynamic playing out
0: yeah well even though he had stopped talking at this point it didn't really matter because they had enough to put Cutlip away for the rest of his life he ended up pleading guilty to the murders of Marlene Carlson Julie Bennett and Nyleen Dahl he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences which he is now serving out at the Snake River correctional facility in Oregon Now, as a side note, in case you're wondering how Cutlip wound up in Texas, apparently sometime in the 90s, he had that warrant out for failing to register as a sex offender in Oregon. And normally, if somebody turns themselves in, registers, corrects the problem, the parole officer is not going to bother sending the case back to the judge for more jail time. But that wasn't the case for Cutlip.
2: Well, he came into the office and he was such an ass to those officers. They're like, screw you, buddy, you're going to jail so and evidently on the ride in the elevator because their office at the time was in the same building that the uh, main justice center jail is in uh as they were riding him down to jail he continued to be disrespectful and i guess they turned right around and treated him the way they thought he needed to be treated not physically but they let him know exactly what they thought of him well he gets into jail and then the jail staff he's pulling his shenanigans in jail not cooperating with them. So they treat him the way they think he needs to be treated. He literally told us this in our interview, that when he got out from jail, he was so despondent about the way he'd been treated by the jail staff and by our sex offender officers, that he found a USA Today paper on the sidewalk that was dated the day he got out of jail. He looked on the weather page and saw that the sunniest place in the country was Brownsville, Texas, So he went out to our local truck stop and hitched a ride with a truck
0: driver that was going to Brownsville because they were disrespectful to him. Yeah, that's rich. You know, (laughs) it's incredible (laughs) when somebody thinks that they have a right to treat other people however they want, and yet they can't handle being disrespected.
1: Yeah, I mean, this it's it's kind of interesting, this personality type, like I can't put my finger on it. Well, you might be wondering, is he a psychopath?
0: Or a sociopath, Detective Lawrence says that you know he's not a psychologist, but he took a pretty well-educated guess.
2: In my experience, in dealing not only with the serial killer cases that I've dealt with, but also generally just homicide cases and violent crimes, there are degrees to having a personality disorder and being socially incompatible with others. In Jeff Cutlip's case, uh, I would view him as being a sociopath because. Jeff Cutlip clearly knows the difference between right and wrong, he just doesn't care. As opposed to a psychopath who may not actually know the difference between right and wrong, or may have some sort of mental deficiency that truly drives him to do things that he doesn't know are wrong. Jeff Cutlip clearly knows the difference between right and wrong, and you can see that not only in the patterns of uh, his uh, records from the damaged state hospital, but clearly in how he described his crimes to detective hopper and i when we interviewed him
0: and one other interesting note here about his family he was one of three siblings he had a brother and a twin sister who apparently turned out
1: just normal yeah i mean that's what makes these types of cases so like what 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 makes that what happened to this little seed this little nugget yeah i mean and, and i think i was getting to that earlier about he clearly knew the difference between right and wrong because yeah. he adjusted his his strategies and picked his victims. And so. he was going to let Julie go until she said she was going to turn him into the police. I don't even know if he was going to let her go. I feel like, you know, that maybe that was part of his game. Maybe he just, it's like, you know, um, a really disgusting case of a mouse, a cat playing with a mm. mouse. Like, yeah, let me continue walking with her. Let me see how far I can push this envelope. And he knew all along that he was going to. Um, but, you know, I mean. Who knows? So what is coming up for next week? So next week, Kim, we're going to have a lot to talk about. The story of Diane Downs, a young mother who in the early 80s was found guilty of opening fire on her three small children as they slept in the car. Her seven-year-old daughter died from her injuries. Her other children barely survived. In the end, her eight-year-old would later testify against her own mother.
0: That's heartbreaking and shocking and I can't wait <laughs> that is just wrong isn't it
1: well and this Diane Downs I don't know if you know a lot about the I mean, name just, is familiar yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah well let me just tell you that was the first true crime book mm. I've ever read somehow I picked up a dog eared copy of Anne Rule's Small Sacrifices sometime when I was probably like 18 or 19 and it was like riveting mm. and just the twists and turns in that case So, so stay tuned
0: I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Asorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime.